Let's turn to John 4. We're going to talk about a passage that if you've been around church at all will be really familiar, but like we say a lot of times here, familiarity can breed apathy or contempt with something, and it can just put us on autopilot. And so this one was harder for me, to be honest, in, in thinking through it and studying through it, because I've never enjoyed the interpretation I've kind of went with, with this Jesus going to um, the Samaritans and meeting a woman at the well. I've never, it's never like, and I, I think I've taught it before, because we you know, we celebrate Lent, and it's one of the passages we go through, but I haven't enjoyed it. And so I want us to take a different look that, <clears throat> that's been working through my brain a bit, and I want us to just think through it and maybe see ourselves and see this, this interaction with Jesus and this woman in a little different light, okay? So we're going to be, in, again, in John 4. It's kind of a longer passage. I'm not going to read it all at one time. Um, this is what he says. Now, he had to go through, speaking of Jesus and his disciples were with him, and he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Okay? So let's, let's talk about a few words that are important here. Okay? Already. Like, there's, there's already a lot to be said the very first line that I read says, and he had to go through Samaria. Why is that important? Why would they say, and this is a real question, like you can answer this one, and I'll, if you're wrong, I'll make it so it's sort of right. So, like, why would he have to go through there? Why would it be said that way? What's the, why, why? What's the point of that? <clears throat> what people? They would. Why is that? Why did you know why they didn't like them? Uh, it has to do with aren't they like partially Jewish? Yes, yes, that's that's correct. That's not me pretending you're right. That's that's very correct. Anyone else want to add to it? That's very that's very correct. Anything else? Okay. During during one of the occupations, um, the Jewish people mixed with another nation, and thus. Um, Samaria was kind of born, and they worshipped differently as well. And we're not going to get into that part yet, because that's a big, long, fun discussion. But that's the deal. And so they hated them. They didn't just not like them. Rob, you were close to super correct on that. They hate them, okay? They would travel days' journeys to go around and not have to go through Samaria. They, They were as, if not more, unclean than the Romans that were occupying them. Like, they they hated them, hated them. It was a a racial thing, it was a cultural thing, and it was celebrated to hate them the most and to dislike being around them the most. So for Jesus to take his disciples through the town is is a bad choice. He's like making him and his disciples unclean from the get-go. They would not understand why he was doing this. We have another story that I like telling because I think it's ridiculous. But uh, later on in Jesus' Uh, life, <clears throat> these um, Samaritans don't believe what he's saying. Like Jesus is teaching, and they're like, meh, not for us, you know? I don't like it. And two of the disciples are like, hey, you know what we should do? We should call down fire from heaven and smoke all of them. And Jesus is like, whoa, no, we should not. That, we went to 11 too fast. And go ahead and try. <laughs> like, you go ahead, see how that works. Like, they hate them, okay? Even Jesus' disciples, anything they, I can't 
overstate it. They would hate going through this town, okay? So, and the fact that they have to go into town and buy food from Samarians, Samaritans, they would hate that too. They would be so frustrated with Jesus for that, okay? Let's keep going. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how is it that you're asking me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. That's a very nice way to say that. They just didn't associate with each other, but it was way more than that. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob? I love that she says that line. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? So breaking down a few other things there. Um, first of all, that he would associate with a Samaritan is crazy town, that, that he would not do. Okay, Jesus wouldn't do that. Or the Jews wouldn't do that. They wouldn't like that Jesus does it. Secondly, it's a woman who's alone, and he is a man who is alone, and like this holier man in everyone's opinion, right? This prophet or a teacher, not the Messiah to everyone yet, but getting there, you know what I mean? So for him to associate even with a Jewish woman, just them two would be out of the question. They would not do that. That's, that's very unholy of this teacher to do, okay? In their cultures, that's incredibly frowned upon, all right? And then also, he says, can I have a drink, right? And she says, why are you doing this? And he says, oh no, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. And then she still doesn't understand. She says, but you don't even have a cup to get the water from. This is also really an important line because the whole idea here is if he associates or drinks from the cup of an unholy person or an unholy culture, he then has to go through this ridiculous cleansing process to be made holy again right? To be made clean and to be made pure after even taking water from this woman's cup because she's a Samaritan and she's used this cup to drink from. She has made that cup unclean and she knows this and she says, you, you don't even have a cup. I, I don't understand what you're asking me. If I use this cup, you have to go through a ritual cleansing process at your temple for days. You, you shouldn't do this. She's trying to help him. She's like, no, no, no. Culturally, you shouldn't talk to me. You're, you're probably not a very good Jew because you're talking to me. Also, too, uh, you're confusing me with this living water conversation. And if you drink from my cup, that's bad for you, man. Like, you, you don't need to do this. Don't do this, right? And Jesus continues, and he says, everyone who drinks this water, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will come in them as a spring of water welling up to eternal life, not meaning afterlife. It means the exciting kind of life that lasts forever. That's that phrase. That phrase doesn't mean you'll have life after death. It means you will have an exciting life starting now that will not end. That's, that's that phrase, okay? We see Jesus say it a lot. That's the meaning, okay? He doesn't say you'll get heaven when you die. That doesn't come across his mouth. Um, and then the woman says, sir, give me this water. Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he, tells, he tells her, here's where I think we misread this passage pretty badly, okay? And here's where it starts. 
Um, she says, please, I don't want to keep coming to draw water. And he tells her, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on the mountains, but you Jews claim that the place that we should worship is in Jerusalem. Now, where I have normally heard this discussion is that here's like the narrative around this part of their conversation. Jesus, at this well, says, look, woman, I know your sins, right? You're married too many times, or at the wrong time. The guy you're with now isn't yours. This, I'm calling out your sins. She says, oh, you're right. You must be a prophet, right? What if, rather, we look at this story in the context of their culture? Women in their culture have no agency to divorce their husbands. None of them can leave. We, we act like, and the story kind of builds on the narrative, that this woman is a sinful woman, right? She's apparently leaving her husband and being with everyone in town and all these things. And, and really, though, she has no agency to do that. In any part of this culture, any part of this time, she literally can, that cannot be the truth. There's no chance. What's probably more true is that her husbands die. Or maybe they were caught by bandits on the road. Maybe racist Jews did him in at the time. That was common from both parties. Samaritans would attack Jews on the road if they came through town. The same back to them. Maybe they were the ones that left her and shamed her in the town. Either way, with every marriage ending, it was disastrous for her. It was hard for her. It would have been sad for her. It would have been borderline abusive if some of those ways are true. It would have destroyed her every time. Her husband dies on the road and she has to find a new husband. Do you know how hard that is in their culture to be married more than one time? She's looked at with such a different light and and possibly and more probable than any other way, no fault of her own at all. No fault of her own. So her being this sinful lady that gets called out, what if instead, what about this time in Lent? We don't, we don't talk about it that way, and we don't try to associate with that part of the story. What if instead we associate with life being really, really hard sometimes? And at times, people around you or life or culture just abuses certain people, and they feel beat down all the time. Maybe she comes to the well late, not because she's sinful and doesn't want people to look at her with disdain, but because she can't stand the culture she's in and to be around people because of her depression or frustration or sadness. What if the man she's living with, we don't know who it is, it doesn't say it's a boyfriend, she needs a male protector in that culture to even make money and eat food. What if it's an uncle? What if it's a friend who says, I don't want you to have to live the life of a single woman here in Samaria. Just stay with me. We don't know. Yet we heap this honor either because it's easy or because she's a woman or that's the narrative around those kind of stories or something, and we miss a ton of it. We miss that if you have a broken marriage, no matter what the cause, it's hard. It's hard. And if you have five, man, you're beat down. Life has been unkind to you. 
If you're, you're having to come to a well, whatever time it is, maybe she's just thirsty at noon. But maybe she just doesn't want to be around people anymore. She's had it. It's over. She's done with it. We, we all can identify with that. You don't want to go to the water cooler at work. You just don't want to talk to anybody else. I don't want to see their happiness, <laughs> right? I don't want to hear any more good news because of what's happening in my life that's hard, right? We have these moments. This maybe is what this woman is walking through. Maybe this is what Jesus is telling her. Maybe he's not calling out, yeah, you're a sinful woman, you can't do marriage. Maybe he's telling her, I know how you're hurting. I know who you are all the way through and through. Yes, you say you don't have a husband, I know. You've lost them, they've lost you. Something has befallen you and it's been a hard life. And I'm telling you, I have real water for you. Maybe she's not thirsty, needing eternal water because she sins all the time, although of course we do. Maybe she's thirsty and needs water because she's just a desert in there. What if that's it? And and when we look around at people, when we go to the well, and we see real people, just know life is hard for them. Life has been unkind Maybe it's from the closest people in their life. Maybe they've experienced real loss. Maybe they are just in the midst of the worst depression of their life. Maybe, who knows what it is, but Jesus meets her there, right at the the depth of it. And he keeps going. He says to her again, or she says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And then she talks about this, this religious question they have that he just skips over. He doesn't have time for it. Our ancestors worshipped on the mountains, but you Jews claim that the place we should worship is in Jerusalem. And he says, woman, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. This is your missing. It's not where you church. <laughs> he says it's not you following the rules. He says there'll be a time You Samaritans worship what you don't know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews to all of you, to all of us, right? He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declares to her, I the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, in reading through the book of John, depending on when this story takes place, he hasn't hasn't said that. If anything, he said it incredibly rarely that he's the Messiah. He lets people ask, and he lets people wonder, right? Jesus lets people declare him the Messiah. But it's interesting that the first, one of the first, I'll say one of the first, times he declares is this to this enemy of his people, this woman who life has been brutal to. And he says, no, no, you need to know here at the well with me now. I am the one you're looking for. He says that the, the thirsting that, that is, it just is unquenchable. Like, you 
can be free. You can have living water coming out of you now. You won't be the one needing water all the time. You will be the giver of it. A spring will be in you, and it will be given to all those around you, right? And then the disciples come back. This is just then the disciples returned, and we're surprised, again, very understated, surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked him, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? That was a good choice, probably. Like, them to upset the scene and be like, what do you think you're doing, Jesus? Probably, but they would have been embarrassed, probably. They're learning. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made way towards him. Another, another argument, I think, for this, for this woman going to the well because no one like, wants to look at her and everyone judges her, why would they then just believe if she runs into town randomly at noon and is like, I met the Messiah? And they're like, you know what? I believe her. That's probably true, right? This, again, the narrative kind of gets lost. and We don't think through it, I don't feel like. So again, this woman who's had this terribly hard life and a difficult journey runs back into town and like, you need to come see this man I've met. The shock and surprise to them, yes, would have been, he knows about my life and I've never met him. That's, that's a good one. Also remember, this Jewish guy's here talking to me at the well. It's weird. You should come look at this. I mean, you should come see this strange person that now I'm concerned might be the Messiah, right? And so they all go around. Everyone in town comes up. Um, meanwhile, his disciples urge him, you need to eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to one another, could someone else have brought him food? I love it. Like, hmm, you have sneaky food? Did someone feed you while we were gone? Like, did you make another fish sandwich? Like, what, what happened? Like, what, how do you eat? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish God's work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest, I tell you. Open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And I want us to not gloss over this last portion here, okay? Jesus tells his people, his disciples, after the strange interaction where they're confused, they don't ask him why he's doing it. They wonder if he's eating lunch, you know, all the things. He tells them, look, I know you're worried about being here. I know we're in the wrong part of town, or the wrong town. It's not even a part of town. It's nation state, sort of. I know you're concerned with that. I know you're hungry. I know you want me to fulfill what you want me to fill, but look around. There are people beaten down by life all around you all around you. They're, they're at the well today. They're your co-worker here. They're who sold your lunch, disciples. Everywhere around you, there are people who are in need of the kingdom of heaven that's actually at hand, of eternal life that they don't have to wait for because that's, I don't even think that's that good of a present. <laughs> I'll be honest. Like, you have to wait for something till you're dead? No way. Jesus says, no, it is here waiting for them. Give it to them. He says, give them water. Make them givers of water, right? That's the whole idea. It's like the whole, 
the whole Jewish idea was you're blessed to be a blessing, right? That's, that's from Abraham on. And Jesus says, then just do it. Start blessing everyone. Just look around you. Our enemies need to be blessed by you, right? People who are hurting need to be blessed by you, by me. I don't need to connect them with someone better. That's, that's the kingdom of heaven at hand. That is this eternal life Jesus constantly talks about, this life to the full that starts now, in the now, and just continues, and just doesn't stop, right? This unstoppable life to the full. And he says, give it away everywhere. He said, I just found it at lunch at the well. Right? And, and this Lent season, this Lenten season, I don't know, maybe you are legitimately, you, the story makes most sense when you see yourself, and I see myself often as the woman at the well who just, when things are difficult and hard, you need someone to say, I have real water for you. I can sit with you on the mourner's bench and give you real water, right? Or maybe you're the one that hasn't noticed anyone else around you's needs in months and months because your own life is hard or it's busy or you have bills to pay or your kids are crazy if you're at the Evers house or whatever it may be, right? That's, that's who we get to be. We get to be springs of water for everyone around us. And that's, that's the joy that we get to experience. Yes, we've talked about, uh, you know, um, sin being destructive to us this Lenten season, right? We put ashes on our forehead because we know that, that from dust we've came, from dust we will return. Life is short, right? All these things. We talk about that in the season. And then we progress and progress and progress. And then we notice, yes, even in the midst of who we actually are, whether we've done it to ourselves or life has just been brutal, whatever it is, Jesus meets us at that well and says, be living water. That's the deal. That's the excitement. And so we're going to have a time of communion now. And as we take communion, maybe we take it like that. Maybe we say, you know what? I want to join Jesus as one with his body and his life and his blood and be actual living water. I want that very much. And we take communion. We say, please give me that, a little of it. (laughs) Or maybe we say, as we take communion, I want you as the Samaritan woman needed you. I need you that way as well. Please help me not thirst anymore. But whatever it is for you, the table's open. So here, here's how we're going to do um, communion. We're going to read a liturgy of response. So I'll read, and I'll ask you to respond back to me. Then we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. And then after that, um, they're going to play two more songs. Anytime in the midst of the singing, you can come and take a cup. The little baggies are gluten-free communion, if you need that. It's totally free for you. Um, And then you can take communion and continue worshiping. You can go pray somewhere. You can go back to your seat. But I want you all to know, too, and this is important to us at Church at East, that you know, no matter what you believe about this story, (laughs) no matter what you are thinking and where you are on your journey of church, you're here, so there's some part of the journey you're on, Communion is open for you. This is an open, inclusive table for everyone.
That's important for us. So anyway, let's stand together, if we would.